Philippians 1, 27 to 30. We're going to read that, starting verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. We're still in the first chapter of the book of Philippians. And I hope it's becoming more apparent to you as we read and as we continue to study this, just how focused Paul is on urging the church at Philippi to center Christ in their thinking. I want you to walk with me just through chapter 1 up to the point where we are now. And what you will see there is first, he says in verse 6, that centering Christ in their lives is a work that God begins in his people. He has started this work and he brings it to completion at the day of Christ. In other words, that is a slow process. Each one of us are a work in progress that will be ongoing until the day Christ returns. You hear me? Each one of us is a work in progress. None of us, pastor included, has it all figured out. Each one of us is a work in progress, and the implication there is we're to give each other grace until that day when Christ returns and we are perfected. Then in verse 8, he says that he has the affection of Christ Jesus for them, and his prayer for them is that they are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that fruit, he says, is produced through an increase of knowledge of God, through an increase of discernment, and that in that their love abounds more and more for one another. And so these three things grow together at the same time. Love for one another, abounding in knowledge of God, and discernment, wisdom. How do we actually apply that? This is how he says they are to ready themselves for the day of Christ. In other words, that's going to be the day where all things are perfected. But until then, you're to be growing until that day. And here's how that comes about. Abounding in the same love for one another, growing in knowledge and discernment. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul told the Philippians that his imprisonment served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ as the imperial guard, the pagan imperial guard in Rome, has come to hear the gospel through him in his prison cell. They come to realize why he's in prison and all those sorts of things. And in some, case, in some cases, the gospel is being preached by people that are antithetical to Paul. They don't really like Paul. But needless to say, the preachers of the gospel are also growing bolder. So the pagan imperial guard is coming to understand why Paul is imprisoned. And the preachers of the word outside of his prison cell are growing bolder as they see Paul in prison. And in this case, in all cases, Paul is excited that the gospel is growing. Even if it comes at the expense of his own name. 
He's okay with that as long as the gospel is actually growing. To be Christ-centered in his thinking then means that his own reputation takes a back seat to the gospel's growth in the culture at large. But last week, we saw that it's not just his own reputation. His very identity takes a back seat to Christ. He says very famously in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. In other words, his very life is to be used by Christ in whatever way Christ sees fit. If I am living, then Christ is alive in me in ministry. Nathan preached here a couple of weeks ago that Paul has a tendency in his letters to go from indicatives to imperatives. Indicatives basically are him making true statements. They're indicative statements. They might be doctrinal statements. They might be statements about his own situation. In this case, we have both. But then he moves to imperatives, where he starts commanding the church to then do something based on the indicatives that we've already seen. Now, in Ephesians, which is where Nathan preached, that is a really clean line. The first three chapters of Ephesians are indicatives. The last three chapters are all imperatives. Based on this doctrine, here's what you do. Perhaps that line isn't as clean in the book of Philippians, but if you wanted a line, here it is, where Paul has just told us a bunch of indicatives about who he is and where he's been. He's now going to begin imperatives, and you can see it right out of the gate. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This imperative is our overriding concern for the rest of the book. Really, the rest of the book of Philippians takes up this central concern to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything from here on out is going to be governed by this charge. He wants their lives to be gospel first, to be gospel-centered. And of course, being gospel first is synonymous with being Christ-centered, since Christ is at the very center of the gospel. He wants us to be able to say, along with Him, for to me, to live is Christ. And in order for that to happen, our manner of life must be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So then we have two objectives this morning. First, we have to ask, what is a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does that even mean? And second, what does it accomplish? What does it mean? What does it accomplish? First, what is a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? So he gives this command, only let your, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he follows that up with, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Remember, Paul is convinced that he's going to make it out of prison, and upon his release, his plan is to come and see them. But he says, basically, whether I'm with you or whether I'm not with you, I want your, to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. So the first way he defines living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, is that they're to have an unwavering doctrine. An unwavering doctrine. He says standing firm, which literally means to be firmly 
committed in conviction or belief. The doctrine, the things that they believe are unwavering. They're unshakable. Paul's telling them that fundamental to their manner of life being worthy of the gospel of Christ is that they have to demonstrate an unwavering commitment to the doctrines of the faith that they espouse. Let's remember that the context of this letter comes as the Apostle Paul is currently doing time in prison somewhere for preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's writing to a church who is likewise facing cultural pressure. And that pressure is not predicted to lessen anytime soon. They're looking on the horizon and they're seeing it coming for them. Imagine if one of your friends in this country was imprisoned for sharing his or her faith with someone else. Imagine how you would feel if that happened. You would naturally assume that they're coming for you next. What are you going to do? Likewise, the church at Philippi is seeing some of the apostles being dragged off into prison and being arrested for their preaching. And what would that do to the church? It could negatively have an impact on the churches because of their association with them. You were established by Paul? Well, he's a criminal. He's a prisoner of the Roman army. What does that make them as a church? However, what we've seen in the letter so far is that Paul is encouraged because his imprisonment has only served to increase the boldness of the preachers, not only in Philippi, but elsewhere. Brothers have grown bolder, but he's writing to them to ensure that their doctrine of the church doesn't cave to the cultural pressure. See, it, it does matter not merely that they believe, it matters what they believe. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, he says, meaning that every single member to a person is in full agreement with what is being taught and are committed to learning it, to growing in it, and even in the need, should the need arise, to teach it themselves. Now, when you hear that, it can sound like, well, the first century church had it all together, didn't they? They were all standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. There were no disagreements. They were all committed to the same cause. That was, that was before, you see, people started arguing about things like Calvinism and Arminianism. Before people started arguing about things like the end times. And all the controversial stuff. See, that, that probably broke out much later. Back here, it was a much simpler faith. They agreed on everything, right? No, in fact, that's not what it means. First, second, and third century writings of the church. Yes, we have many of them. Tell us that, in fact, there were many disagreements within the church. Sometimes vehement disagreements. Disagreements over the nature and origin of angelic beings. Whether we should worship on Saturday or Sunday. 
the end times, particularly what would now be called premillennialism, premillennialism, or amillennialism. Both of those were argued as early as the first century. The future salvation of Israel or not. Predestination and free will. There you go. Whether or not truly saved Christians can keep the law of Moses as a form of personal devotion, or is that legalism? Vehement debate. Diverse views on the Lord's Supper and on baptism, how often they should be practiced, how they should be practiced. All of those debated 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century in the church. So what we actually see in the context of the New Testament and even in the early church, is that there was a diversity of opinion on deep issues within the Scripture itself. And you can imagine two people sitting down at a table, arguing with their, one with his verses in his back pocket and the other with his verses in his back pocket. But with that level of disagreement present in every church, what we find is that there's another level that supersedes all of the differences of opinion. That supersedes all the disagreements about things that distilled the essence of the Christian faith, believed everywhere, always, and by all. This was what superseded all those petty disagreements and arguments. Things like the triune God as Creator and Redeemer. There was broad agreement. The fall and resulting depravity. Broad agreement. The person and work of Christ. Broad agreement. Salvation by grace through faith. Inspiration and authority of Scripture. Redeemed humanity incorporated into Christ. The restoration of humanity and creation to name a few. All of these superseded any disagreements that might be within the body. On these issues and things like these, there was universal agreement. See, these are the kinds of things that Paul is challenging the church at Philippi to stand firm in one spirit. There's not an expectation from Paul or from anyone else, nor has there ever been, that everyone sees every single issue exactly the same. Never has that been the case. There will, always, there will be some things that will always have debates, especially when it comes to the finer points of Scripture. But there are things that have always been agreed upon, everywhere, always, and by all. And these things unite us with many of our Presbyterian brothers, many of our Methodist brothers and sisters, Pentecostal brothers and sisters, and even some Baptists. But there's a mentality among some in Christian churches that we have to agree on every finer point of doctrine or one of us ain't saved. And that is absolute, complete rubbish. Some Christians have so vehemently staked their claim on their own doctrinal positions that they've begun to see themselves as the Savior of the church. 
I have news for you. The church already has a Savior, and you ain't it. They think sometimes the church would be going to hell in a handbasket if it wasn't for them. All the while, they never realize that Christian maturity is understanding where the line of liberty actually is. Where people can disagree about things and peacefully be brother and sister in Christ. Things that have always been a boundary of liberty. And yet in the midst of those things, turn to their brother or sister and accept them. I've said many times that I'm persuaded by many of the Reformed or what you might call Calvinistic readings of Scripture. Not because I want to be a Calvinist or because I thought it was cool. I didn't even know what it was when I became convinced of these things. But I'm convinced that that's what the text is saying. That's why. I'll teach that. I'll argue for that. Because I believe it's true, and I believe that's what the Word is actually saying. But I'd never mandate anyone that it be my way or the highway, or that you can't be a member of this church unless you think that way. We can disagree on those things, and even discuss and debate those things. But Paul is pushing the Philippians and us here to be of one spirit on the fundamental material of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ is first and foremost to have an unwavering commitment to the core Christian doctrine. The thing that separates one from Christian versus unchristian. These are the things that bind us to Trinity Presbyterian, as an example, right down the road. The second is to be a body characterized by a united proclamation. A united proclamation. Now this is similar, but he qualifies it with the words at the end of verse 27. Look there. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As I said, this is similar to the previous one, but I I thought it was different enough to merit a mention. He has in mind a church body that isn't just in agreement with one another over the uh, foundational elements of the gospel, but one who actually turns to preach it both to their brothers and sisters around them and to the culture at large. A church that's committed to actually verbalizing the gospel outside of its walls, especially when it's difficult. This word that Paul uses here, that you see translated in your English Bibles, probably most of your Bibles, as striving side by side. It's actually one word, but he says it's translated in English as striving side by side. He actually uses it twice in this book. And the second reference is later on in Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. And I want you to read that. You can see it on the screen behind me, or you can turn there if if it's a quick turn for you. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these two ladies 
have a bit of a spat in the church at Philippi. And Paul urges them, or urges someone on their behalf, hey, sit them down and help them to get over it. Because they're laboring side by side with him in the gospel. He remembers them laboring side by side as with the other people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Meaning, they're saved. They're going to be with us for eternity. Help them to get over this little spat. Same word, labored side by side, or in our passage, striving side by side. The idea is not merely just standing firm on doctrine, but actually acting on it. Whereas the previous point might have been a good defense, here's what Paul is presenting. You need a good offense too, church. You don't just need to stand firm. You actually need to progress. You need to move. You need a good offense in the culture. In fact, he wants them to act as though they have one mind together. Even though we know there's a difference of opinion, if there wasn't a difference of opinion, he wouldn't urge them to have one mind. It wouldn't be need, need to be commanded. He says, for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he wants the church at Philippi to be missional. But don't forget the context. The church at Philippi is receiving a letter from a man who's doing time in a penitentiary. Well, of some kind. And he's doing time for preaching the gospel. And now they're being told that they need a good offense. In other words, you can't just shut the door and say, us for, no more, shut the door. You actually have to go out. You have to carry on the faith that is based on the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, you need to remind each other of it. You need to tell the world outside about it especially when times get difficult. The good news of Jesus Christ cannot suffer in the midst of persecution. The good news that although we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin although he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to more than 500 people post-resurrection. He has now ascended to heaven and he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. But as for now, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. These are all elements of the Gospel that Paul pulls out from various books to churches that he's written. This is the good news that he wants the church focused on proclaiming. How many of us in here cannot agree on that? I would hope that's universal. This is the gospel that we're contending for. This is the gospel that we're to preach into the culture. It's the gospel that actually changes us from the inside out. You understand that God has forgiven us so immensely that you've never seen the kind of forgiveness that we can extend to each other because of the gospel. Because it changes us from the inside out. 
God has given us such unmerited grace that you've never seen the kind of grace that we can extend to each other because we have been so changed by the gospel. God has been unbelievably generous to us. So you've never seen the kind of generosity that a Christian can exude because he's been changed from the inside out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has taken away the sting of death. So you've never seen the kind of joy that a Christian can exude who has been changed from the inside out by the good news of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we're contending side by side for the gospel in every way. That means that we're verbally to share that with others, the reason for the hope that is within us. That means that we're to confront sin within our own church body. Because the gospel takes precedence in our church. The name of Jesus is at stake. And so members that are associated with His name should be confronted where sin exists and received in forgiveness where there is repentance. But we also contend for the gospel in the way we live. We live joyously because He's taken away the sting of death. We live generously because He's been so generous to us. We exude grace and forgiveness towards others because that's precisely what He has extended to us. We're to be changed from the inside out. And we're to demonstrate that in the way we live our lives precisely because of what God has done for us. You see. So don't tell me you're a Calvinist with a frown on your face when all you care to do is beat your brothers and sisters over the head with your favorite verses and meanwhile you're worried about every news story that comes up on the TV even though you say it's been planned since the foundation of the world. Don't tell me that you've got the end times all figured out and then use it as a weapon to divide yourself from your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as if those verses got scrubbed out of your Bible altogether. In your copy of Philippians, does Paul say striving face to face for the gospel? Or does it, like mine, say striving side by side for the gospel? Don't tell me about your doctrine unless it has actually made a radical difference in your nature. Fundamental change, fruit from that doctrine, is what needs to be demonstrated in the life of the body. See, atheists can divide. That's easy. Atheists can hate. Atheists can be grumpy, pessimistic, hard-hearted, and gossiping complainers. Christians who are contending side by side for the faith have no reason to be so. Don't only tell about your doctrine to others. Show it to them. Contend for the gospel side by side, even, and maybe most especially, 
with those with whom you disagree. Why? Because the gospel is more important than your ego. That's why. To let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ is first and foremost to have an unwavering commitment to core Christian doctrine. And second, to be united in our proclamation of the gospel. Third, to be unafraid of opposition. To be unafraid of opposition. Paul is confronting what must be on the minds of every Christian in Philippi at this point, no doubt. They see opposition rising up on the horizon, but right in front of them. In the letter in front of them is someone who is the recipient of that opposition. And when he says your opponents, I think he means opponents of the gospel itself. People that would contend against the gospel or would seek to harm them because of their faith, imprison them or whatever. Lest the church at Philippi be tempted, as I said before, to close the doors and not let the outside world in, to maybe cease evangelism because it's unlawful or because what some people may say it causes harm, Paul urges them to be fearless. Opponents of Christianity in this country are growing by the second. Our brothers and sisters in the university world have seen this for, no doubt, several years And many of us now in the culture are beginning to see it. Some of our friends and family members, some of their kids. The message of Christianity, as far as the culture is concerned, is becoming the message of bigoted hatred, misogyny, and intolerance. And the 24-hour news cycle is filled with things that you are supposed to fear. It's what they continually peddle, is either fear or lust. They've only got two gears. It's the world they operate in. Here's what you should fear. Here's what you should like. You should be afraid of this. This is coming to a town near you very soon. If you don't do something, look at how the neighborhood's going to change. Oh, man. It's going to be awful. So what do we do? We panic. Because they tell us to. Can you believe this? Have you seen that? The whole world's going to change. Can you imagine what will happen if they elect that person? You should be very afraid. Or then we start advising other Christians. I can't imagine having kids in this day and age. Parents, have you heard that? See, I'm guilty of it too. I'm not pointing a finger. But if you're discipled by the TV... Don't be surprised when you become fearful. If you're discipled by the internet, don't be surprised when you become angry at everyone. Because I'm convinced that's what the internet is. It's its sole purpose. It's just make you mad at everyone. But when you're led by the word, you see Paul here reminding Christians everywhere, if they take your food, preach the gospel harder, while you starve to death side by side. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live together as a body that promotes the gospel above all else. Everything hinges on that. If you take it away, you have nothing. 
All your other doctrines don't matter if you take that away. Christ resurrected from the dead. You remove that. Nothing else matters. But if you have it in place, and if it's at the center, everything else revolves around that. Everything else becomes ancillary. Important, maybe. Good, healthy, solid discussions on the grounds of Scripture, but they take a back seat to the very center point of the gospel that we're all fighting for. Live in such a way so as to testify to others what has happened to you. This is it. But then the second question is, what does it accomplish? What does it actually accomplish? And it accomplishes two things. First, he says, it preaches the, to the culture their destruction. It preaches to the culture their destruction. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. And the second goes with it. He says, it preaches to the culture God's gift of salvation. So, what does it accomplish? First, it preaches to the culture their destruction. And second, it preaches to the culture God's gift of salvation. In other words, it doesn't have to be that way. He says, but of your salvation. And Paul says, technically, this is from God. Most translations, I think ESV has that from God, which is essentially the same thing. But he's saying, this is from God. Their destruction, your salvation, and this is from God. And when he says this is from God, he means the whole thing. Everything he's been saying up to this point. Your life being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Not being frightened by your opponents. All of this is from God. In other words, it's supernatural. It's not natural to stand up to temptation like that if, if, uh, with fear of death. It's not natural to stand up unafraid of starvation. It's not natural to do that. Paul's saying precisely the opposite. It is supernatural. It's a gift from God. And then he goes on to explain. He says in 29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Think about the two things that he's just said to you. Your belief in Christ has been given to you. You didn't crack the code. You didn't come to faith naturally. You weren't presented with a choice, and you somehow were the wiser one who chose to accept it. You weren't faced with the choice to reject Christ or to accept Him, and you made the wise choice. How good are you? That's not what Paul's saying. He says, your belief in Christ is a gift of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. So when you stand side by side, when you come together for the gospel, you testify that your faith is supernatural. God has bought us back. He has graciously redeemed us by His mercy. But then Paul gets tricky. I'm okay, I can accept that. All right, good deal. But then he pulls the rug out from under me and he says, just like your faith is a gift, so is your suffering. It's a gift. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. 
you should not only believe in his name, but also suffer for his sake. Thanks. It's a gift. Starvation, persecution, imprisonment. Paul's walking to the guillotine, beheading. It's a gift. How is it a gift? Because it proves his children. It perfects his children. His children then walk to the guillotine saying, to die is gain. It grows. It matures his children. And your faith your unity, your fearlessness in the face of opposition, in the face of a world that is so divided they can't even decide what their identity is. And they divide each other based on their identity. It could be skin color one day and it could be gender the next. A world that's so divided. You're in one group one day and you're in another group the next day. And yet, here is the church in the middle of all that. who's faced with the same temptations that the world is faced with. Temptations to divide. But Paul says, no. Supernaturally, you're united in the gospel. Striving side by side for the veracity of the gospel. And that striving side by side, that unity in the midst of diversity is precisely what presents a compelling argument to the rest of the world that this is supernatural. Because what's natural is everything you see on TV. What's supernatural is what should be taking place in this room. I think D.A. Carson said it best. In other words, your change in character... Your united stand in defense of the gospel. Your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitute a sign. That sign speaks volumes, both to the outside world and to the Christian community. It's a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It's a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. So then the question is, are you mad at somebody? Kill it. Kill the anger. And get over it. Unite side by side for the gospel. If you don't, it's going to kill you. Nothing's been improved by your anger. I promise. Are you afraid? You look out on the horizon and you see the culture changing. What do you do? Are you afraid? Does it scare you? Let me advise you. Turn off the TV. Repent of fear. Pray to the Lord for strength. And be discipled by His Word. Instead of the TV. If not... What we risk is sullying the name of Jesus. But when we come together for the gospel, 
We testify to the world that his name is bigger than our ego. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know of my overriding concern for us as a church body. That we be a church that presents to the world a united front, consistent with what's in your word. You know where there is disagreement. You know where there is grumbling. You know where there is complaining. As is true of every church, I pray that you bring every member of this church together for the gospel. That we understand what's at stake. And we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Would you put the gospel in our mouth? Would you put courage in our heart? So that what comes out of our mouth is words of encouragement and grace and mercy and care and love and peace. Because of all the things that you have done for us. Would you make our church a bastion of gospel proclamation to the world around us? That we can stand firm in doctrine and move with a united front into the culture, preaching the message of repentance of sin and forgiveness that can be found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To your glory forever and ever. Amen.